Uh, but chapter one, all in. Everybody say all in. A century ago, a band of brave souls became known as the one-way missionaries. They purchased single tickets to the mission field around without the returning half. And instead of suitcases, they packed their few earthly belongings into coffins. As they sailed out of port, they waved goodbye to everyone they loved, everything they knew. They knew that they would never return home. W.A. Milne, who was one of those missionaries, he set sail for the New Hebrides in the South Pacific, knowing full well that the headhunters who lived there had martyred every single missionary before him. Milne did not fear for his life because he'd already died. He had already died to himself. His coffin was packed. And for 35 years, he lived among the tribe and loved them. And when he died, the tribal members buried him in the middle of their village and inscribed this epitaph on his tombstone. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. When did we start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things? The faithfulness of hol- that faithfulness is holding the fort, that playing it safe is actually safe. But there is a greater privilege uh, uh, that, uh, uh, when did we start believing that there is a greater privilege than sacrifice, that radical is anything but normal? Jesus didn't die to keep us safe. He died to make us dangerous. Faithfulness is not holding the fort. It's storming the gates of hell. I got to turn the page before you guys. There we go. The will of God is not an insurance plan. It's a daring plan. The complete surrender of your life is to the cause of Christ isn't radical. It's normal. It's time to quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. It is time to go all in and all out and all in all. Are you ready to pack your coffin? Okay, are you ready to read the book now? This is an awesome, awesome book. But the whole point is that, you know, God saved us for something radical, something more than just getting by, something more, something more, something more. And that's what these first 21 days of January are set aside for. And I'm going to keep pushing, and I'm going to keep, keep trying and keep going after this. I know we do this year after year after year, and I'm not going to quit doing it until we have come to a place where we feel that we have already reached it. And I'll tell Tell you what, people of God, I have not reached it yet. Have any of you? So now it is time to go all in. It's all. It's time. It's time. Some of you sitting here, you've thought about it. You've you've wondered. You're, you're, ah, it's time. It's time to go all in. It's time to pack your coffin. Amen. I love reading about heroes. I have a couple of books that are on my bedside, and I read them every, every night before I go to bed. I, I pick it up, and I read about one more. Oh, one more, one more. In the morning, I'll read about another one. Heroes of the faith, people who have done amazing things that I have never, ever, couldn't even imagine. There was a guy by the name of William Hunter. He was a 19-year-old young man who had the privilege of living in 19, or the 1500s, the early 1500s, during a time where the Bible had been chained to the pulpit for hundreds of years. That Luther had come along and, and had, spur, had, had set a, uh, into motion the, the Reformation and he had taken that Bible and he translated it into common man, man's language. And William Hunter got a hold of a Bible. He's 19 years old. And he begins to read it in his little town in Essex, uh, England. And he began to read it and he was seen by the, by the Catholic priests and by the, the magistrates of the town. And they said, stop reading your Bible. That's only for the church. And he said, no, 19 years old, you will die if you read your Bible. 19 years old, he continued to read his Bible. He was burned at the stake. 
1555. There's a memorial that stands in that town, and it says, Luther Hunter Martyr. Killed and committed to the flames, March 26, 1555. Christian reader, learn from his example to value an open Bible. That 19-year-old kid was a hero. And his story lives on. Polycarp lived in 200 AD. Uh, his, uh, he was a Christian. He was a uh, pastor. And, and his Roman captors grabbed him during a, a, a great persecution. I've shared this with our Saturday night crew. And I just love this man. He was, he was uh, taken and, and brought to the Colosseum of his city. And, and he was going to be fed to the lions that day because the magistrates couldn't handle it another day of his preaching. He was going to be fed to the lions, but, but there was delays and problems along the way. And he gets there only to find out that the lions had been put to bed. <laughs> but no, they weren't going to be dissuaded. So instead of feeding them to the lions, they built a bonfire and they built a, put a stake in the middle of the, the Colosseum. And they were going to put him in the crowds were there chanting, burn him, burn him. And he walked up with all of his faith and all of his strength and they tied him to that stake they lit the fire but the flames refused to consume him the flames refused to consume him the flames had a had this incredible strange way of burning out instead of in and as the people were watching once again this thwarting of his imminent death there was a sweet incense that began to fill that Colosseum. The magistrates were not going to be fooled one more time. They grabbed a spear and they ran it through his side. A hero. A hero. Oh, that we could have heroes. Oh, that I could be a hero. I want to be a hero. But to be a hero, it requires all in. To be a hero, we can't think about it one day and then go back to our regular life the next day. We have to be all in. You have to pack your coffin. You have to die to yourself. You have to die to your desires. And you have to lay it down for the desires and the cross of Jesus Christ. Because he has hero plans for you. Though your story might not be written and read hundreds of years from now, there are plenty of heroes that live their life that we don't even know about. Oh, to be a hero. Dwayne and I are poised. At the beginning of 2016 with New Horizon Christian Center, you got to come to church today and hear my sermon, so therefore you are a part of us. Sorry. We don't have a big, you know, like, membership program. You just come and you're here, you're in. But we stand poised to challenge you, to love you, to encourage you, to deliver you, to teach you, to push you, to shove you, to kick you in your rear. So, until all of us, all of us, including myself, I need a kick here and there, enters into God's intentions for 2016. I am not going to end 2016 off point. In Jesus' name, amen? I like to join with the writer of Hebrews. And uh, uh, I love chapter 12, starting with verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all of a sudden that cloud of witnesses starts to take on faces. 
When you start reading about the heroes, this great cloud of witnesses that right now are surrounding us and watching us, they joined in our worship. The word says that the word that we join in with the angels and, and the great cloud of witnesses, even now, if we could see them, they're, they're surrounding even here watching you going, it's your time. Mine is past. I can't walk this earth anymore. Now you are. What are you doing with it? Since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders you. Everything that hinders you. Can you just see the great cloud of witnesses looking at you? You're trying to run because you got a little bit of pornography hanging on. You got a little bit of anger and bitterness, and you got a little, and you're trying to run your race like, and you can't figure out why you're not going somewhere. And they're all looking at you like, would you please throw it off? Oh, I got hurt in the last church I was in. So I'm not going to run. I'm just going to wander and meander. No! Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. Uh, The race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for who the joy set before him endured his cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hallelujah. Amen? Are you in? So, uh, for the Daniel fast, the next four weeks, I really, really want to encourage you that today you would take some time to really set aside what are you going to fast. Decide ahead of time. We've got it figured out. As far as the fast and the food is concerned, it is not a law. You figure it out. Are you going to do eggs? Are you going to do cheese? Are you going to eat fish? Are you gonna, what are you going to eat? What, how are you going to enter in? But I implore you to join with us that we would have unity in this as a body. That we might be able to see the hand of God move. What are you going to give up? What are you going to give up? TV, Facebook. What are you going to do with your little self if you don't have TV and Facebook? Oh, man. You'll have so much time on your hands. I implore you to to figure that out. I implore you to, if you pray five minutes a day, make it 10. If you pray 10, make it 20. If you prayed an hour, let's up it. Whatever you do, wherever you start, wherever you find yourself, give it a little more push. Give it a little bit more, just a little bit more today. Just a little bit more for 21 days. And I'll bet you after 21 days it will become not anymore your ceiling of your prayer life, but now your floor of your prayer life that you will stand on and continue to grow. Amen? So we're going to do a four-part series about um, how we're going to kind of be going about this, the breakthrough, the revival for society, overcoming in your families, in your careers, for this nation. Oh, people of God, this is a year that we better be fasting and praying because this is a year of elections. We can't pray the night before and think things are going to just, you know, like, bam. We've got to start rearranging things in the heavenlies right now. Right now. Amen? So I'm going to do part one of this series here today. And I want to pick up, if you would with me, if you would follow me, uh, because I just love um, where we're going to head here today. Uh, We're going to start with the, the life of David, though. We're going to look at the life of David. How many of you are familiar with David? 
David was an amazing, mighty man. He was a hero. And uh, the Bible says that he was a man after... Yes, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. He was, um, he was as a very young man, set apart, anointed, a guy, you know, you, he was just out in the field doing his work. He was a kid, and uh, he heard the, you know, hey, David, come in, there's a guy who wants to see you. So he's like, okay, you know, and he puts his stuff down, and he comes in, and, and here's Samuel standing there, and Samuel douses him with oil and says, you're going to be the next king of Israel. What a day that was. And all of his family's watching him like, really? You've got to be kidding me. And so Samuel rides out of town, and he's doused with oil. What's he going to do with that? He's still a kid. So what did he do with it? He started to grow. He started to grow up. He started to grow. He spent a good seven years serving a very unfaithful, unkind, unfair boss Wait a minute, I am king of Israel. I have been anointed and I have to serve you. You're unfair, you're unkind, you're out of line. You're not even obedient to God. God says, absolutely, you better learn how to submit and you better learn how to walk every single day of your life even though it's horrible as if it's heaven. He then ran for his life for seven years out in the, uh, from that one guy trying to kill him all the time. So here's uh, David running for his life for another seven years. He finally becomes king and he, he has mighty exploits and he, he routes the enemy and, and he writes huge portions of the Old Testament and he's, he's a mighty man after God's own heart. I want to pick it up though if you would uh, open your Bibles at 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to start with verse 1. I'm going to read, and then I'm going to skip a section and then go to the next. But hopefully they'll be able to keep up with me on the screens. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, we'll start with verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Many of you have heard this. It was the season for kings to go out to war, but after all of David's mighty exploits, after all of his incredible life that he had lived, he decided this season he was done. He was going to sit back and retire. He was going to stay in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone out to find out who, about her. He came back and it said, uh, the man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman had conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Wait a, wait a, wait a minute. Mighty man of God? Whoopsies. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David, and Uriah came. David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, first of all, Uriah is probably standing there going, why do you want to talk to me? There's a war out there, and I'm kind of busy. And David's asking him, so how's Joab? How's it going out there? Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. 
So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he said, asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why don't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark of Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and his Lord's men, uh, my Lord's men are camped at the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. So we've got a man of character and integrity here. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem, and that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, this is David, this is David. You remember man after God's own heart. Uh, So he just kind of keeps adding things to his pile here. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants, and he did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and said, uh, sent it with Uriah. Uriah actually carried this letter. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front lines where the fighting is fiercest, and then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. It's getting worse. What are you thinking, David? So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite was killed. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. I'm going to skip down to verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him, and after a time of mourning was over, David brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And here's the most important line of this whole entire chapter. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Mighty, mighty man of God. Incredible, mighty man of God. Did something that displeased the Lord. David now finds himself with not only adultery on his hands, but murder, lies, all sorts of things are on his hands now, laying on his head. He is a mighty man of God. He is the king of Israel. And he finds himself in a place of sin. Sin always separates us from God. Always. Always. And God's biggest number one desire is to be close to us. That's why he made us. So we have this problem. We have this, we have this issue now where, where we want to be together with God, where we, he desires us to be one with him, and yet sin always separates us from him. Whenever God and man are close, you have incredible. Wherever God and man are close, you have incredible. And the years prior to this chapter with David, it was an incredible story. If you read it, he does one thing after another after another. He does everything right. He's close to God. He's writing worship songs and he's leading so many things. And he's pulling the whole uh, nation of Israel together. And it is considered the top zenith time of the kingdom of Israel. David was doing so many things right. And when David was close to God, every Everything was going so well. But I will tell you that the moment he began to sin here, there was a separation between God and David. 
And wherever God and man are close, life is incredible. But I will tell you that wherever sin comes in, that portion of that man's life then separates away from God. It's kind of like a bad zipper. You know, you zip it, and in the middle it might separate, and then the whole thing comes apart. Those of you who like visual images. So to live close to God, to be close, to be man plus God equals amazing, we better understand who God is. And I have a few things I want to share with you about who God is. Number one, God is holy. Now, we don't talk about that very much anymore, it seems. It's not cool. But God is holy. I I hate to tell you this, but God is holy. That's what makes him God. God is holy. The word holy means pure and clean. There is no sin found in God. He is completely and utterly holy. And I don't think we can ever quite imagine what that is. But he is completely and utterly holy. Holy. There's not one smudge on him. He is completely and utterly holy. And if we come and we're close to him, if there's any part of us that's unholy, something has to happen. Because God's holy. But we want to be close to him. But we're not holy. So to have us close to him... Since he's holy and we're not something. Second thing. God is holy, number one. Number two, God is just. He is absolutely, perfectly just. The Bible says clearly that his throne sits on justice. The foundations of God's throne is justice. Justice refers to laws. It refers to the courts. It refers to, you know, judgments and, and sentencing and, and, and verdicts and all sorts of things like that. God is completely and utterly just. He is fair. He is fair. God is holy and just. And he will bring forth fair judgments. In fact, there's a thing. There is a place called the judgment seat of Christ. Has anybody ever heard of that? I tell my children of it regularly. (laughs) You can read about it in 2 Corinthians. In fact, let me read it to you right now really quickly. My time is going so fast. Uh, For we all must appear before, this is uh, 2 Corinthians 5, chapter, uh, verse 10. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may receive what is due him, the things, for the things that are done in the body, whether good or bad. This is New Testament. This is not Old Testament. So you can't tell me that as soon as, you know, this is New Testament. There is a judgment seat of Christ where a holy God who will come And look at everything in our life. And I don't want to scare you, but I kind of do. He's going to look at everything in your life and he's going to judge it. Now this is not popular theology. You're not going to hear about this a lot. But it's true. 
God is holy and God is judge, uh, just. And there is a judgment seat where every one of us will stand and where every one of our deeds, either good or bad, will be brought to light. And there won't be any finger pointing. There won't be any blaming. It will be you. But she, but he, well, you know, I don't think there will be a whole lot of conversation. Right? It'll be... But let me tell you some other things about God. God is completely love. Love. The heart of God never stops pumping love. He is love. God is also compassionate. He's full of mercy and grace. These are the things that God is all at the same time. And it's very, very hard for us to conceive of all of these things coming together at the same time. It's very hard for us to reconcile a holy and just God with a loving, merciful God. And I told you last week that many times in the church, when there are two very opposite things found in God, that man tries to understand it. And and he's standing there kind of like, well, is he just and holy or is he totally God, you know, love and mercy? Well, I think, and the church sometimes has a hard time with this mystery of who God is. And so the church will choose one or the other. That's called a heresy. So there was a time in the church where God was only holy and just. And all we heard was, you know, you're going to die and holy and just. And it's going to be terrible, terrible, terrible. That's all we heard. But I will say right now, right now in the church we stand very precariously on that balance of swinging towards this heresy over here, which is God is love and grace and mercy. Do anything you want. For you see, trying to put a merciful, loving God and a just and holy God together, just it's it's too much for our minds to conceive. But you need to remember, your brain is this big. And God is... It's kind of similar. I was out walking this, this week, and I was thinking, God, how can I help him understand all this understanding God business? And he's like, okay, see that mountain up there? Yeah, that Mount Rainier is really huge. Try to shove that in a pillowcase. That's you trying to understand God. Shove that thing in a pillowcase, and you, will, and you can walk around with your little pillowcase. Here is Mount Rainier. And I would look at you and say, are you kidding me? But that's how God, people are sometimes with God. Here's God. I got them figured out. But I will tell you that God is both. And we have to find, listen to me very closely, we have to find the place where the judgment that we so deserve from a holy, just God collides with the mercy and love of a God that we so desperately need. And I'm here today to tell you, at the beginning of our Daniel fast, that there is a place where a holy and just God, holy, where the judgment seat of Christ, the holiness and the justness of him collides with love and mercy. 
And there's a hallowed ground where we as human beings have a great privilege to be able to stand in. But it's a place that we avoid. Because it's a very scary place to be. And the place that I speak of is a place called repentance. God has set this thing up. Knowing his holiness and knowing his justice and knowing his love and knowing his mercy and knowing us. That it won't take us very long to not be holy. And he sets this thing up called repentance. And repentance is a place that only we as humans can enter into. Repentance is a hallowed ground that is set aside for every single human being that finds themselves separated from God, that finds themselves in the place of needing judgment, that finds themselves falling short. And God calls us to this place, this beautiful place called repentance. Because when we sin... The judgment and the holiness of God is a hand that's coming. There's judgment coming. There's judgment coming. There's judgment coming. But when we find and enter in and take our place and the hallowed ground of repentance, then that stays the hand of, of judgment with the hand of God's mercy. And that intersection, that place where the hand of God's judgment and the hand of God's compassion and love and mercy, right there, right there. The only way we can bring those two together is a place, a hallowed ground, a place of most, utmost importance called repentance. But it's a scary place. It's not where we want to be. It's where, you know, in 2016, this is, you know, good psychology says, because here's the problem. Repentance is painful. Repentance is the most uncomfortable place to be. And do you know why? Because you have to admit that there is a right and a wrong. And that you find yourself on the wrong side of the right and the wrong. Repentance requires every human being to say, Oh, Father God, I failed. Repentance is a place where it causes us to respond to the guilt and the shame that we feel, not ignore it, not bury it, not cover it, not get sick and tired of it, not wish you could have run from it, but it's when you acknowledge it and you say, Oh, Father God, let that Guilt and shame chase me to your hallowed ground of repentance. Repentance is a place where we as human beings have to step out of our pride and our arrogance and say, I can't do it. I need you. Not every religion has a repentance hallowed ground. Other religions require you to work hard, 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 work harder. And we'll never know if you're good enough. Work hard. Be better, be better, be better. Go do more things. Crawl on your knees. But God says in, in, in his loving kindness in Christianity, he says, absolutely not. I have a hallowed ground and it's carved out. And it's called repentance. Please, please, please come to my heart. 
My judgment is coming. I can't stop it. I am God. I am holy. I am just. The only thing that can stay it is the hand of my mercy and my grace. And the only way to bring the hand of God's judgment and and holiness and grace and mercy is to repent. And when you do, that hand comes and it stops it. Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and turn, the word turn, the word turn is the Hebrew word for repent that gets uh, translated either turn, change, or repent. But it means to turn, come, come to the hallowed ground of repentance. And if my people, if my people who are called by my name. Not everyone in America has to do this, but if my people will be called, who are called by my name, will turn and come to this place of repentance and call on me, then I will heal their nation. Jonah was called to Nineveh. He didn't want to go. Nineveh was evil, awful place. Jonah ran. You know, the, the whale thing and all that. But he finally goes, and he preaches to the people of Nineveh, and they repented. Read the book of Jonah. It's only four chapters. Chapter 3, you'll find the whole entire city casts their uh, clothes and rips their clothes and puts sackcloth and ashes and fasts and repents. And the judgment coming to the city was stopped by the grace and the mercy that was unleashed in repentance. And Jonah was mad. See, God, I told you that if I came here and and preached to them, they would repent. You're such a kind and loving God that you would forgive them, and I didn't want you to. I wanted you to judge them. But I am here to tell you, America, well, first of all, let's just start with you. I don't know about you, but I have judgment coming because I am so impure. I'm so imperfect. I have judgment. Do me. My family has judgment due us. My nation, my city, everywhere I turn, there is impurity and there's unholiness. And there's a just God who's watching and who has to bring judgment. Now, I know this kind of sermon is not the kind that has, you know, is listed under church growth. But is it? Is it really not under church growth? But I am here to tell you that every single human sitting here, there is a hallowed ground that God is calling you to even now for your own personal life, for your family, for your children, for your home, for your city, for your nation. There is a hallowed ground that resides between the hand of God's judgment and the judgment seat of Christ and the mercy and the love of God. Do you know that there is another seat spoken of in the Bible? There's another seat. There's the judgment seat of Christ. But there's another one. It's called the mercy seat. It's called the mercy seat. And it resides on the Ark of the Covenant where the, the presence of God and man meet. 
And if I repent of my sins, if I come and I humble my heart and I bend my, my neck and I'm not a stiff-necked person, but if I bend my neck in humility and I admit my wrongs and I repent, the Lord If I confess my sins, the Lord is faithful and just to forgive my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. When you get up from the place of repentance, you're cleansed. When you get up from the place of repentance, you are cleansed. But if you don't go through the place of repentance and you just want to keep saying, God's grace and mercy, grace and mercy, I can do whatever, you are not cleansed because you didn't go through the blood of Jesus I'm sorry, people. It's a place of repentance. I want to be the best repenter on the planet. I want to practice repentance. I want to get so good at it that whenever there's a little twinge, I'm so quick to say, God, I'm sorry. So let's pick up David. I know I'm going to be running over. Please forgive me. But our last verse where we left David. Remember? It's been a while. The thing that David did displeased the Lord. I want you to turn over now to Psalm 51. This is David's response to his sin. This is what David did when he found himself displeasing God. When he found himself in sin. When he found himself in in a place of separation because he, he does not want to be separated Because man plus God equals incredible. I will tell you, man and God separated equals miserable. Psalm 51, verse 1. This is his prayer at this moment in his life. We have the absolute honor to be able to peek in to his prayer life at this moment. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions and wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sins are always before me against you and only you have I sinned. How many times do we apologize and repent to people and we don't ever apologize and repent to God for our our shortfallings? He is saying against you and only you have I sinned. Wait wait a minute, he killed Uriah and he, no, he's saying no, my biggest sin, my, the most important piece right here is between you and me because I want us close so every time you find yourself separated from God make it right vertically but then make it right horizontally for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that we are proved right when, when that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge since uh, surely I was sinful at birth and sinful from the time my mother conceived me surely you desire truth in the inner parts You teach me wisdom in the inmost parts. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a clean and pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners to turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, and 
the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Do not delight. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you do not despise. This is repentance. He got up from that prayer cleansed. He got up from that prayer cleansed with the hyssop. He got up from that prayer experiencing the love and the compassion side of God. And the hand of judgment was stayed. And I want to encourage every single one of you people that we're going to start our fast. We're going to start 2016. We're going to start this year. We're going to start this year with a humble, contrite heart, repenting for anything and everything personally that we have done to separate us from God. Oh, Joel, this is so old-fashioned. I don't want to do that. I'm free. I'm free. Remember? No, you might be free. David was a mighty man of God, but he sinned. You are a mighty woman and man of God, but you... You, come on. Have you, any of you? Please join me in my sins. <laughs> no, just kidding. I run constantly until we get out of this world and we enter into our place of perfection in heaven. I will become the best repenter on the planet because every time I repent, I stay the hand of judgment and I release the God of mercy and the judgment seat becomes the mercy seat in my life. Singers, come on up. Come on up. Come on up. I pray I have moved you. I pray that I have moved you. I pray that I have moved you. I pray that the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to my word and that for the very first days of 2016 and that for the first seven days of our fast, it will be committed to a place of repentance. A repentance for our own lives. A repentance for our country. A repentance for our families that are broken and shattered. A repentance. A repentance for anger against people. A repentance. A repentance, a place of humility. Will you join me there? Will you join me there for the next seven days that as you pray... I'm not saying that's the only thing we pray about, but it will be our focus. Father God, Father God, cleanse us with his. Let's all stand.